Family Kick is live. It is Sunday night, November 6th, the year of our Lord, 2022. You guys out there searching through 10,000 spoons and all you needed was a knife. We are jam-packed high atop a much darker Nashville, Tennessee, figuratively, of course, because of daylight savings, because it is really, really bright in Athens, GA. It's really bright in Baton Rouge. We're going to talk, obviously, about everything that happened in Week 10 CFB. Georgia, I thought, played the game of the year yesterday. We were on the sideline for it. I'll talk about that to lead the show. Bama Falls, Clemson Falls, hello, LSU. Welcome to the party, some would argue. They were already here. I have some atonement to make up for, to do, to put in, if you will, tonight. Every given Saturday tour, pretty historic announcement coming your way in about 30 or 35 minutes. I've got some added best bets. I don't want to waste any time on the front end because we've got a really, really jam-packed show. I know a lot of you are looking forward to kind of sadistically sitting back and kicking your feet up and wallowing in the misery of others. One of the most beautiful things about this sport, in my opinion, they're watching us in Knoxville. To be clear, Robert is watching us in Knoxville. Highland, New York is tuned in. Springfield, Louisiana, Milledgeville, GA. We're already over 144,000 subs on the YouTube channel. I and very, very clearly Director Colin are supremely confident we can get to 150,000 subs by Thanksgiving. Can we do that? It's rhetorical. Of course we can. 150K subs by Thanksgiving keeps the show free, makes management ultra happy. And look, keeping management off of your tail in the Thanksgiving and Christmas season, wouldn't that be great? So let's do it. And then once we get there, the other add-on is you get to decide what your own prize is. How great is that? You just get to choose your own present. That's the first request I've got from you. The other one I'm going to put on the back end of the show. Uh, so I'll talk to you about that then because it's much different than subscribing to the channel or liking the video, both of which I wish you would do, though. Is that a tap out? Yes, several teams had to do that yesterday. Where are we going to start here? Let's start with the obvious. Georgia 27, Tennessee 13. Wow, that game did not feel that close, did it? So yesterday we were in Athens, Georgia. I, like many people, expected a much closer game than that. I took Tennessee plus the points, took Georgia to win. Kind of a cop-out, if you want to call it that. I think a lot of people went that direction. I don't think the logic was that unsound. I was driving back last night, and I was thinking to myself, after I just witnessed what I witnessed, couldn't hear a thing, still have ringing in my ears. That's not a joke. That's real life. I'll talk about Sanford Stadium in a second. Uh, Y'all deserve a lot of credit for that. but. I don't think my logic was unsound. I've felt this way with about like two or three teams in my life. It's logical to expect an offense like Tennessee to be able to score on any defense. That's logical. It's logical to watch a team like Georgia lose just the sheer amount of talent they did to the NFL draft and expect mm, there could be a weakness. There could be a, a piece or two that could be exposed here and there. Certainly, they're not going to be an impenetrable unit defensively. That's logical. And if you think in those terms, it's going to steer you in the right direction about 98% of the time, maybe even 99% of the time, but there's always that 1%, isn't there? And that team there, the ones in red and black with the silver britches, of course, they're just the 1%. They're just the different product in the game right now than any other product out there. I've got a lot of friends over on Dogs 24-7. Mm, a lot of acquaintances, some friends, 
And if there's one thing I know they love more than anything else, it is when I compare their program to Alabama. The Alabama you want to be compared to right now is the one in the rearview mirror, not the windshield necessarily. Talk about that later. But my point is we used to say that about Bama. We used to say they defy conventional wisdom, keep your logic, keep your common sense, but just throw it out the window when you're talking about them. Well, that's Georgia now. You keep your logic. Tennessee is going to probably hang a ridiculous number on anyone else they play. You keep your conventional wisdom. When teams lose a ton of guys to the NFL draft, there's going to be an expected drop-off. Keep all that. It will steer you in the right direction. Just remember when you talk about that, that block G there, that's a different animal now. It will be for a long time. The George defense yesterday, I thought made the statement of the year in college football so far. What they did, 2 of 14 on third down, is remarkable. And I want to go at it in a couple of different directions here. Uh, pretty early on, I thought that uh, the first quarter was going to be disproportionately telling for both teams. And yet, there we sit, opening drive for Georgia. They turn the ball over. Bennett almost throws a pick. It doesn't get picked. Then they put the ball on the ground. Tennessee grabs it. They end up scoring. And there are some people who I assume maybe had to take a call at that point. You know, maybe, maybe had to go answer the door. Maybe FedEx came to the door, knock, knock, knock. And you go back, and it's 14-3 to 3 Georgia with like half the quarter to go. And you think to yourself, they've got a two-score lead, and they turned it over on their opening possession? Yes. Yes, because they did the Tennessee stuff more than Tennessee could do the Tennessee stuff early on. I know tight end's been the focal point of Georgia's offense this year so far. They had some receivers step up. It turns out they really could victimize Tennessee's secondary because their offensive line went to work. Georgia's offensive line needed to play the game of the year. It's what we talked about Thursday. It's what we talked about Tuesday. It's what they largely did yesterday. I don't know what PFF graded them out on. I know I stood there and looked across the field the entire afternoon, and I saw which side was getting surged. I saw which quarterback was kept clean for the most part, and it was the one wearing the red top. So Stetson Bennett had himself a really good afternoon. Georgia's offense. They did what they wanted to do. I know there are some really, really casual tweets circulating out there talking about how they had their lowest relative offensive output in a number of categories. Guys, please don't fall for that stuff. Please, look, if this is you, just take the hook out of your mouth. Don't be caught by that. Georgia wanted to play a different style yesterday that led to more offensive output. They could have. They could have. They didn't want to. Because, as Kirby Smart said many times in the postgame, and as has been said many times by any coach worth his salt, complimentary football has won in the past, it does win today, and it will always win. I know there's some clinics out there in the summer that may suggest otherwise. Complimentary football very much works. Tennessee was put in third down 14 times, nine times they were in third and five or longer, and they were 0 for 9 in those circumstances. That's your padlock stat. Georgia put them in uncomfortable positions, and Georgia put them in positions where their entire playbook was, in fact, not available to them. I don't know what else you can say about them. They swarm. They play as one. This stuff sounds so clean and easy to say. Look at how few the number of teams are out there who do this. One of them right now, one of them is really playing like Georgia. They're playing on a different level. They swarm. Uh, as I said, they collectively play as a unit. There's always five or ten of them around the football, it seems like. They tackle. 
they're physical, they do stuff that a lot of people would try and convince you you can't do anymore because of the way practice has changed. Go to a Georgia practice on a Tuesday or Wednesday. You probably can't, but talk to people who are at Georgia practices on Tuesday or Wednesday and ask them how the physicality is around there. Ask them how the competitiveness is around there. That C word, another really important attribute to your culture, competing. And sometimes when you get to the point they are depth-wise, sometimes your stiffest competition does come on Tuesday or Wednesday from the guy running two right now, but really close to running with the ones or splitting reps with the ones. They compete. Man, everything's, it's everything. Every single thing's competition around there. How's this possible? How many times did I hear that asked yesterday in the postgame? I was in Smart's postgame presser. I think like five people asked him, how, how could you do this? Almost like he's trying to defy a script out there or something. How could you lose this many players to the NFL draft and, and still put forth this sort of performance? That's not what my preview magazine said you were going to do. Uh-oh. Well, how do they do it? They got the best culture in college football right now. Culture. There's that word again. Everyone's got one, right? Well, that is true. Everyone does have a culture. Some of them just suck. Georgia's is the best in college football right now. They're able to clear the mechanism. You know what clearing the mechanism is? That's when you are literally able to vacuum close all outside noise out of your program. They clear the mechanism like no other program in America. There is nothing outside that matters. There is no criticism that matters. No one else's expectations matter. There were, there were different takes coming from all over last week, including here. None of that stuff mattered. I was at the facility Friday. Uh, they were nice enough to tour me around, and I talked to some of their staff. Uh, coincidentally, I left that building Friday, having predicted a close game, you know, before I talked to anyone down in Athens, and I left Friday night saying, uh-oh. Uh, if I could redo Friday night, if I could do the segment again Friday night, you would have found me taking Georgia to win and cover. They were supremely confident. People have been confident and lost before, but I think they felt very, very, very good about the matchup and what they were going to be able to do. And the thing about it is, there was very little variance in their expectation. Uh, Kirby said post-game, we knew we had done everything we could. So there's a, there's a path where Tennessee could have won the game, but if they won the game, it would be because they truly are the number one team in the country. Georgia wasn't going to give them an inch. They weren't going to give them a thing. And instead, Georgia just proved they got the best culture in college football. They didn't just prove it yesterday. They reiterated it yesterday. But that culture thing, it's funny. Everyone's got one. But not everyone has an elite culture. But when you can clear that mechanism and when you really can slam the door on everything outside of your program, it's magical. It's one thing if you can do it as an individual. I don't doubt Kirby Smart gets in his truck every morning and drives to work and takes care of locking everything else out for his own self. And maybe he can even do it for his staff to a certain extent. When you can do it for 19-year-old college football players and a locker room full of them, then you can achieve some really special things and you can do it over and over and over again because that standard doesn't change. And if you can ever secure the mechanism and you can ever lock all that noise out and truly create an environment where all that matters is what's on the inside. So the only things that matter are your standard and then your process. You define what you're about and then you push that to the side. You don't really focus on the goals. You just focus on doing every single hour of every single day what it takes to achieve them. It's the same way you build a successful show. It's the same way you build a successful business. It's the same way you build and maintain a successful football program. And when you've got it, it doesn't matter how many times that revolving door over there swings. 
Fact of the matter is, the better you get, the more likely your people are to get poached. The better you get, the more likely you are to send a bunch of guys off to the NFL draft. But when you've got the same immersion process happening, and you're getting the right types of people and immersing them in the same kind of culture, you get shockingly similar results. That's why that phrase, reload over rebuild, that's a really popular buzz phrase, but you don't get to say it very often. You can say it about them. What about Tennessee here? What do we make of them? It was very somber around the program last night. That's because they want to win the SEC championship, and they probably can't now, but they can still make the playoff. In fact, I had Jesse look up the current odds to win the national championship, not just to make the SEC championship or make the playoff or anything like that. You know where Tennessee is right now? After their loss yesterday, they're fourth. They're fourth. Tennessee's got the fourth best odds to win the national championship, and they're significantly ahead of TCU. So this team is still, I would argue, expected to make the college football playoff. You know what part of that is because of? Part of that is because Odds makers don't think TCU is going undefeated. They're a seven-point dog this Saturday. TCU plays at Texas. You know the one that all of you think we have overrated in the JP poll. Uh, shocker, Texas is favored again over a team that you have ranked higher than them. So TCU's there. Oregon, your Pac-12 champ, maybe. Ten Tennessee is still very much in the thick of this is the point. Everyone wants to dunk, as Meemaw used to say. I tried this out on Jesse earlier today. It, it got a pop in the room. Everyone wants to dunk, but no one wants the growing pains. And yesterday's just necessary. You just need it. I know it would have been nice to win the game. Certainly, if you could hit the rewind button, you would change the outcome for the better for Tennessee. Yes, you want to win the game. I just want you to put yourself in 2025 for a second. Who knows? Maybe you're putting yourself three months from now and you're hoisting a national championship trophy. I'm just saying, sometimes... You really got to get slapped in the back of the head. You really got to get just pushed up against the wall, figuratively, of course. And you need to understand, and you need your people to understand, here's how far we've come. That's what the real deal over there looks like. That's how far we have left to go. Now, we're not going to do things exactly how they do. There's certainly more than one way to skin the cat, but they're on the right track. Um, and it, it's really important to note how seriously they got taken yesterday. It's, everybody believes a nameless, faceless opponent. There was a reason that the energy and the hype and the atmosphere around that game yesterday was a little bit different. It's because Tennessee has made you take them that seriously. And they're still very much in this thing. Uh, they can still be a threat. They can still make the playoff. But Heupel, in his postgame, I thought was very blunt. He was very short but direct and honest. And he said, we didn't do a good job of handling the emotional aspect of the game, which is a great intangible, but it's so evident in every game. You see it on TV. You don't even have to be there in person. You see it, and you understand which teams are rattled early or which teams are not settling into the moment, which teams can't clear their own mechanism, and the externals are working against them. Well, that happened to Tennessee. They didn't handle that stuff. Uh, any, any, mm, I almost said something bad. I don't want to, though. They didn't handle it very well yesterday, and he was brutally honest. He said the same thing. They had 14 attempts, as I said, on third down. They were 2 of 14. A ton of penalties. I think that there was a quote from Eric Ainge that circulated last week about how Sanford Stadium, not that tough. Not that tough. And I retweeted it and said, I think this is both right historically and wrong presently. I'll get back to that in just a second, actually. But they still have the fourth best odds to win the titles. Tennessee's still there. I just think in the long run, 
this is going to go a long way in jolting the program back into reality with a team that still stands to benefit and, and achieve a lot this year. It's not all bad. I'm just telling you, it's not all bad. And if you don't think that yesterday's outcome could flip with a few plays going a different way, Georgia's coaching staff knows that's true. You know, that's why you and I saw a dominant performance, but you listen to the head coach of the University of Georgia, and he's very cautious to talk about it in those terms. He knows they dominated him yesterday, but he knows that's yesterday. And he knows if, if Bennett gets sacked down there instead of rushing for a touchdown, it could change the whole game. If uh, Jalen Hyatt has a couple of balls instead of him going five yards beyond his reach, if he's under one of them, it could go a different way. It didn't. And that's a good thing for Georgia, and it's probably a beneficial thing for Tennessee. They still got a lot to play for this year. It will benefit them in the future. Let me talk about Athens for a second. So I, I don't get to go down there ever because Georgia's home schedule is atrocious next year. It's atrocious. I would bet you anything. We don't get to go to a game there next year. And the fans know it. And it will pay, or I don't think it'll pay off. It'll change in the future when they expand the conference schedule. Plus, Georgia's got a lot of good home and home scheduled in the future. But right now, you're stuck with what you got. Home field in college football in these big games is undervalued. Our buddies, college football nerds, I saw them talking about this yesterday. I've said this several times on this show. I mean, you'd have odds makers tell you that home field, Sanford Stadium, even in a big game, oh, we'll give it three and a half or four points. Home field in these big games, I'm at every single one of them. I am telling you it's worth over a touchdown. Playing there yesterday was absurd to try and handle if you're Tennessee. Just like in Neyland a couple of weeks ago, it was absurd to try and handle that if you're Alabama. They work on this stuff all week. And yet, even having been prepared for it, that's what that environment does. I don't know what the decibel level is to hurt your hearing. I don't know at what point it just all sounds like noise. But whatever that point is, that place got well above that point yesterday because I could not distinguish between that and Death Valley at night and, and kneeling a couple of weeks ago. Couldn't distinguish between it. Certainly had a big outcome or impact on the outcome of the game. And here's the thing about the Georgia game day experience. Those of you around that place know, those of you who have covered games there or maybe have even played there would know it's always been a really good environment, not lethal. Georgia, Sanford Stadium on a Saturday historically was not a top 10, top 5, toughest type places to play. They didn't ever make those lists. They do now. And that coincides with a change in attitude overall in that program. A lot changed there when Kirby Smart came in. And it's a testament to how much impact one powerful person can have on a program and one person who has singular focus and can get an organization and in turn an entire group, an entire massive fan base to buy into a collective vision and an administration to get on the same page. It is wild how different that place is. I remember going up there, it would have been about 10 or so years ago. It was during Mark Richt. And it was a really good program. I mean, Georgia was never bad under Mark Richt, but they weren't top three. But the facilities were just good. Uh, the attitude around the program was just pretty good. Th they didn't have a killer instinct. They did not have that go-for-the-throat mentality. They just didn't have it as a program. 
Uh, the boosters didn't. The administration didn't. I was up there Friday night, and that place is like NASA. It is wild what all they have and the access that those players have. It's a life-changing experience. I always love comparing and contrasting different facilities and different resources that programs have, but it's Kirby Smart. It is Kirby Smart. That is the difference. And that's why the best get paid what they do. Because look at the mushroom clouds difference in impact over that program, and it's one dude. Same thing happened at Bama in 06, 07, 08 when Saban came in. Same things happened at Georgia in 16, what was it, 16, 17 when Kirby Smart came in. And it's, its ripple effect will be felt for years. I mean, he'll, I don't know when he'll be gone. Maybe it's 30 years from now. But they got stuff there that you'll enjoy long after he's gone because he was there. They celebrated the life of Vince Dooley over the weekend. He passed away last week. They celebrated him this weekend. There's a lot about Georgia football that you know because of what he did once upon a time. And so you've just got a more modern-day version of that. But, man, they are operating at a very high level. It was really good to get back to my home state. And I, I know I've said this two or three times this year, but I'm going to say it again. We have never had a reception and never been um, recognized as frequently and as, as plentifully, there we go, as we were this weekend. If you've never been to a game, Sanford Stadium, I would highly recommend putting that one on your bucket list. Just wait till they have a marquee opponent in there. It was a good weekend in Houston, wasn't it? And of course, by that, I'm talking about the opening of a new Academy Sports and Outdoors. I'm told the Astros had a good weekend, too. I'm not leaving Dusty Baker and company out. Former Brave, by the way. So hats off to Dusty Baker for winning the World Series. But what you need to do is you need to finish your celebration, and then you needed to be over at the new Academy Sports and Outdoors there in Houston. And while you're there, you need to provide proof that you went, because I'm going to give you guys about another 24 hours in and around Houston to prove that you went to the new location there, and then we're going to select 10 of you randomly to take home a chalice of supremacy. Why? Because our people from Academy are just that good. Academy Sports and Outdoors, our exclusive partner, there is no other partner here, even the Chalice of Choice Liquids, is nameless, it's brandless, all you have is a Pate State logo there. Why? Because Academy Sports and Outdoors fits 100% of the bill for this show. It's free to you because of them. And so if you need a t-shirt for this week, if you need a new glove, if you need anything and everything, Academy Sports and Outdoors is your one-stop shop. If you can't get there in person, don't worry, they'll probably have you a store there soon enough. But in the meantime, academy.com is where you want to go. So I go to the Georgia game yesterday, and that was, a, that was an experience. Maybe not as close a game as America and, and our bosses at CBS wanted, but an experience, a spectacle nonetheless. Then I get in my car, and I'm headed back up the highway towards Atlanta. Yes, I am a man of the people, so I drove the five hours home last night, just like you guys did. And I'm in my car listening to the Alabama LSU game on the radio. It helps that I was listening to the LSU broadcast. I apologize to our buddy Chris Stewart. Couldn't pick it up, so I had to go with the LSU side of things. And, and it turned out that it was, it was a, a memorable night for many reasons in Death Valley. So here's what I want to do. Colin, we haven't even started the segment yet. I want to take you back to June 5th, this year, on this very program, I made a statement. 
This was at the very height of the Brian Kelly Cajun accent controversy. You remember that fondly. Everybody remembers that. Everybody had an opinion on that. And we were talking about who's a good fit and who's a bad fit. And then we fast forwarded a little bit. And Notre Dame was recruiting really well. And Brian Kelly was sort of endearing himself to the LSU fan base. And I came to the realization that we had a very, very rare confluence of events on our hands in college football that was leading to an even more rare circumstance. Colin, roll it. Which brings me back to my original point. Because LSU fans love who they have. Notre Dame fans love who they have. We could be seeing one of those rarest of occurrences in sports, especially college football. The classic win-win. Because LSU folks are looking around saying, we love having Brian Kelly here. Brian Kelly looks around and says, I love being here. It's looser. So everything I claim I wanted to do and the investment I claim I needed at Notre Dame, I've got it in Baton Rouge. I kind of get to reinvent myself in the process. But Notre Dame fans couldn't care less about that. They're not bitter because they look and they say, Marcus Freeman's got how many kids in the top 250 already committed? And it's June what? So everyone's looking around and they seem kind of happy with where they are right now. I'm looking at Adam over here in the live chat. Adam, I love you. I appreciate you watching. But, I mean, tough love here. Settle down for a second. I'm not going to combine all these teams into one segment. I'm making a point here. More specifically, I'm patting ourselves on our back here. I have, this, Colin, this is your end point, okay? So for those of you who are just going to watch the individual video on the YouTube channel this week, you wouldn't have heard any of what I just said. I got some breaking news here. Brian Kelly is a good fit for another week in Baton Rouge. Isn't this great? LSU 33, Alabama 32. We thought one thing. Some of you thought that this was a lost cause, but lo and behold, Brian Kelly, not only did he beat Alabama last night, what if I told you the Bayou Bengals down there have their entire fate in their hands? Notice I didn't pull out a list of paper with a bunch of scenarios or scenarios and tell you that this, 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 and this needs to happen. Nope. There they are. Two-loss team. Boy, if we could change week one, how about that? They got everything in front of them. Let's talk about this game. Brian Kelly. I'll talk about him in a second. How about this? Observations and conclusions. You remember what Meemaw said about observations in week one, don't you? The wise man makes observations in week one. Only the foolish man draws conclusions. But some people couldn't help themselves. Some people saw LSU drop a close game to Florida State in week one in a sport where we have kids who were in high school five or six months ago playing, and we have no preseason, and everyone figured out, boy, this Brian Kelly thing probably ain't going to work. Just utter foolishness. And then here we are. Believe it or not, they showed up to work the following Monday, and the players still showed up to the facility the following Monday, and they are 7-2. They are a top 10 ranked team. We'll see what the JP poll has them to use in that. Jaden Daniels has been better than best case scenario for this team this year. He shined last night. He was one of many facets of this program that led to an historic win over Alabama. But Daniels, it wasn't a good night for him. It's been a good year for him. Not without hiccups. But when you consider what we were talking about in the preseason, where we were asking openly, who's going to win the job? It wasn't a surefire thing that he was even going to win the job. He's one of only three quarterbacks in America right now with at least 1,500 passing yards and 500 rushing yards. LSU last night against Bama averaged 5.6 yards per play. That's a solid yard above what Bama's defense had been giving up on average per game. 
and you're getting Bama off the bye week, and sure, you're coming off your bye week too, but you expect to get the full force, whatever that is, of Alabama this year. You expect to get it. I got a padlock stat for you. I didn't think LSU was going to be able to run the ball. In fact, I didn't think this was a good matchup for them at all. I'm not dancing around this. I, I thought they were going to get run. Truthfully, thought they were going to get run. And there was no uh-oh moment for me on this one. I never saw it coming until it, until it happened. I almost got myself with an immunity there. 185 to 137 is your padlock stat. Those were the respective rushing statistics here. And the team that amassed 185 was the team there in purple. That's amazing. It's amazing, and I didn't expect it. Of course, the leading rusher was Jaden Daniels. Those yards count. Those points count, especially when they come in overtime. You, you fight, and you fight, and you fight. And I was listening to this on the radio. I was listening to the LSU radio call. Those guys nailed it last night, by the way. And so you can imagine my feeling as I'm sitting in gridlock traffic somewhere between Athens and Atlanta, and I'm thinking multiple times, Bama's going to answer here. I mean, surely this is going to be another one of those games where I'm going to be sitting on air Sunday night and I'm going to be talking about how they squeaked through and they just barely got by one more time and LSU, answer, answer, answer. There were like half a dozen lead changes in the second half. Imagine how blessed Fowler and Herbstreet must have felt down there in Baton Rouge because ESPN didn't have the first pick here. The first pick, obviously, went to CBS and they took number one versus number two, as they should. And so there's Herbie and Fowler down there and they just got an instant classic unfolding before their very eyes. I, I think sometimes when teams upset Alabama, the default, I've been guilty of this, is to ask, what happened to Alabama? Sometimes you get beat. LSU beat Alabama last night. You can talk about self-inflicted whatever all you want to. They didn't lose to air, guys. And what you're starting to see, maybe with a little bit of a fast-forward button effect, is you're starting to see the Brian Kelly effect on this program. The Brian Kelly effect already becoming very clear at LSU. I don't want to be hyperbolic here. I don't want to get ahead of the curve. They are a two-point favorite against Arkansas this week. They could lose this week. It wouldn't change what you saw yesterday. It wouldn't change what's happening off the field. Uh, there's ample evidence that Brian Kelly is building a long-term winning culture there. Let's talk about, by the way, that winning culture. You know, the thing that people said he wouldn't be a fit with? Brian Kelly doesn't get Louisiana culture. Here's LSU culture. Here's Louisiana culture. You put together an excellent staff. You be well on your way to landing a top five class in your first year on the job. You embrace your personality. You even have a little fun with it. And don't care for a second whether anyone's laughing at you on the outside. You get Bama on the ropes the first chance you got and you go for their throat, and you beat them at home, and then you storm the field and pay a quarter million dollar fine because of it. If you do that, you can talk in any accent you want, because that's foolishness, that's nonsense, that stuff doesn't matter, it never mattered, that has nothing to do with the formula for winning. The formula for winning is the same everywhere, guys. The formula for winning is the same in South Bend, as it is in Los Angeles, as it is in Miami, and, and everywhere in between. And also, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, they've got it. There was never a mystery here. In, in a litany, in a long line of dumb things said to pass the time in the spring and summer, one of the dumbest was because of the accent this guy uses and because he doesn't like this or doesn't feel like that, he's not going to be a fit at LSU. I, I, that was me. I was speechless. I remember talking about it several times. 
So you notice those people are nowhere to be found. They have morphed into crickets now. And LSU's got a really good team, even in year one. I want to remind you, this is the same group that took 39 scholarship players to their bowl game last year. Shouldn't be happening this quick. And maybe it is a little ahead of schedule. So there's no guarantee week to week here right now. But I can tell you, they just took down their biggest rival in year one. That's what they did. And they control their own destiny in November. That's another thing that they're doing. Now, they, as I said, go to Arkansas this week. They're favored by two. They've got a date against A&M. Colin, can I see their schedule right quick? LSU schedule? I should have it memorized because it's only like three games. I think they got UAB maybe in there somewhere. So they've got Arkansas this week. There it is. And then they've got UAB at home, and then they go to Texas A&M. So two of their final three, both of the conference games are on the road. A lot of energy around that program. Everything you needed to sell anyone on the fence has been accomplished. I'm not just talking about fans. There are a lot of kids out there that, if all things were equal, would love to play for LSU. You know that, and I know that. There are a lot of kids out there that look around and say, I'd really like to play at LSU. It's just that recently, if you're a top-level kid and you got offers from the other major programs, it's hard to justify in your mind going to LSU because you don't think you're giving yourself the same kind of opportunity that you're giving yourself if you go to other places. That's changing really quickly. It's not an overnight thing. Contrary to what this year may try and teach you, it's not an overnight thing, but they're very quickly showing kids. Imagine watching that last night and being on the fence. You're not on the fence anymore. You want to go to LSU. You're going to LSU now. I'm, I'm sure the official visitors list was incredible last night, and I'm sure they had a lot of kids that maybe didn't make the trip that watched on TV that regret not making the trip. And they got a good staff down there too. You know, Brian Kelly, I, I think a lot of folks also quietly questioned what kind of staff he could put together. It's one of the biggest bits of feedback I got from the industry when LSU hired him. People kept telling me, you know, he hasn't been many places. So he doesn't have the kind of network that he can go out and, out and pull from when putting together a staff that some coaches do. I think they're doing okay. So congrats to LSU. I got to get them right back. I, strangely, I think they'll be okay this week. Doesn't guarantee a win. I, they're deep enough in the season, and I think they're focused enough where I don't think there'll be a massive hangover effect here. There should be. I don't think there will be. If you're watching the live show, which everyone tuned in right now is, and I appreciate you guys, by the way, uh, it's the most viewed show we've ever had live. So if you could, please click that thumbs up button there and subscribe to the channel. And donate. No, I'm just playing. We don't need any money. Here's what I'm going to do, though. I thought it was necessary to split this segment into an LSU portion and an Alabama portion. So that's why you didn't hear a lot of Bama there. <laughs> you're, about to, you're about to hear a little Bama here. Let me take a sip from the Chalice of Choice liquid, named by you, not me. We went with a, a very light violet tonight. Hmm. Interesting choice by the staff. I just sip it. I don't control it. Um... So anyway, if you're watching the live show or you're listening to the podcast, this part right here will end up being put up on the channel by Director Colin as just an Alabama video. So if you're, if you're wondering why that is, that's why that is. Alabama falling to LSU 33 to 32. I'm going to say something here, and I've almost said it a few times, but I haven't. I've resisted. I'm not going to resist anymore. I don't really recognize Alabama right now. 
think a lot of the fan base feels the same way. Everybody who's observed the program over the years feels the same way. I think the head coach there feels the same way. You may not believe that, but unlike you, he can't just bail in the middle of the year. Unlike you, he can't run to the nearest message board and fire half his staff in the middle of the year. It's coming. It's coming. A lot of changes are coming there. Bruce Hornsby, one of his best song titles uh, that was an underappreciated song, is going to be some changes made. I think they will be. Let's paper pop that, actually. That's like our version of an amen from the third pew there. The SEC championship game kind of messed up my vision on this team. This program, really. The SEC championship game, I think, messed up a lot of our perspectives on this team. Because if you remove nothing more than just that one four-quarter example in Atlanta last year, what do you have over the past two years? I was talking to Tim Watts on the way home last night, uh, a guy that a lot of times I just use to stay awake when I have to drive. And, and he'll make you stay awake, I can promise you that. And I was asking him some questions, and he was asking me some questions. He said, think about these last two years. And I had to write it down because it's a long list. At Florida last year, they won by two points. At AM, they lost by three points. The LSU game last year, LSU was awful last year. They beat them by six points. At Auburn, overtime, they won by two points. And then a title game, they lost by two touchdowns to Georgia. This year, Texas game, they won by one. They win by four against AM. They go to Tennessee and lose by three. They lose yesterday by one. <clears throat> That's not the profile of a dominant program. They're Alabama in name only right now. But my point in listing those games is not to pile on. My point is to reiterate, this is not a new thing. And I was talking to Watts and he said, you know what's interesting is, have you had fun watching that team lately? And I thought to myself, I get what you're saying there. Like if I'm a Bama fan and I'm looking at that team the past couple of years, it's one thing if you get beat. Like I remember their, their teams in the mid-20-teens. That team that lost to Clemson in 2016, I will still maintain, is one of the best teams I've seen Nick Saban have. It's just that Deshaun Watson was that good. And Dabo put together an effort. His team put together an effort in the title game that was that good. But that team was, was a thrill to watch and to be around. I was covering them in local news down in Columbus at the time. Just an awesome collection of talent. Awesome collection of guys. That Alabama team would dog walk this Alabama team and then stand over them and dare them to get up and do anything because they had an identity about themselves. This team doesn't have. Really, the last two years' teams, they just hadn't had that. And you can attribute a number of different things to be the reason for that. But mm, there's just this little chalk outline on the ground right now where Bama used to be because that, that right there, what we're watching, uh, that's not, at least when they talk about the Bama standard, that's not the Bama standard. Bryce Young was not great in this game yesterday, but I'm not about to heap any blame at that dude's feet because he's been carrying that team all year. He is the reason they have a shot in these games. It's wild when you watch them and you look at how much of their offensive production comes on broken plays, meaning it has nothing to do with the play that was called. It's the athlete that's holding the football and he's just better than everybody else. The offensive line was bad. I thought in this game, uh, Bryce ended up being 25 of 51. He was a 49% completion guy. That's the worst night of his career, statistically. They've lost multiple games before the Iron Bowl now for the first time since 2010. So anyway, everybody watched the game. You've all got your takes on that. What's going to happen here? 
obviously, they're not just going to continue on this trajectory. Uh, if they did that, Nick Saban might as well just walk away from the sport because he's certainly not one to sit around and tolerate that sort of thing. I can 100% guarantee you staff changes are coming here. 100%. They can't come before the end of the season. Anybody wanting heads to roll on Monday morning, that's not the way it works. Guys, you know that, but I can guarantee you moves are coming. Several moves are coming. There'll be, the dump, it, there'll be a dump button hit on a lot of this Alabama staff. And the reason I know that and the reason you can know it is publicly available. I would suggest you go back and watch Nick Saban's postgame press conference last night because he did something that I thought was very telling. Even after he talked about how poorly they played, he talked about how much this team is underachieved. Those are my words. I'm paraphrasing him. He made sure to mention that I appreciate the team playing hard. I like this team. And what he was doing, in my not-so-humble opinion, is he was telegraphing to everyone that they failed the team. His coaching staff which starts with him. They have failed that locker room. And what I think he's sitting there honestly saying to folks is, look, the job we've done here, or the lack thereof, has put them in this position. Uh, He's done this a couple of times. He's made sure to defend the players. And he always does that, but there's a specific way he's done it this year that screams to me, he thinks they've failed as a staff, and he doesn't want the blame to be placed on the players. And he'll take care of the staff once the season's over. But he's telling anyone who's listening and has been around him for a long time, it's on us. It's on me. Starts with me and it's on us. They are doing what they can do based on the position we've put them in, is the way that I've taken these comments from Nick Saban postgame. So I know it rubs some of you the wrong way because he keeps on saying things and you just want him to drop the hammer on folks. That's never going to happen publicly. The only time he's that demonstrative is after they win, just like on the sideline. The only time you see him like that is when they're winning. When they're losing, it's all about we, 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 and it starts with him, and he knows that, and I think there will be moves made. I don't expect either of their coordinators to be back next year, and what you learn the more that you talk to coaches, and every week I'm in another town, so every week I'm talking to other coaching staffs. What you learn is how this sport really works. If you're a a casual fan, I grew up as one. My view of the sport was you got the head coach. Sometimes you know the names of the coordinators. If you're a really diehard fan, you know the names of all your position coaches. That's like the three or 4% of you, and I appreciate it. There is an army of people behind the scenes in this sport that play integral roles in whether your team wins or loses on Saturday and you'll never know their names and you'll never see them on TV and you'll probably never even see their bio on the internet. But there is such a ripple effect that happens when one person moves, when a Kirby Smart, for example, goes from being your defensive coordinator to the head coach of another program. Sure, that's a big loss for you, but you know that. What you don't know is how important maybe, I'm speaking generically here, the two position coaches he takes and the four or five grad assistants that are under them that they take with them, and the two uh, football operations guys, and the three recruiting coordinators or assistants they take. These people are pivotal in your day-to-day operations, your strength and conditioning, your nutrition. You don't see these people. My point in going through that spider web of personnel is there's always shake-up with Alabama. They have massive amounts of turnover every year. 
because the people they have are the most coveted people in all the land. You never know who they are, but it's blatantly obvious some combination of what Nick Saban had underneath him that's no longer there has disrupted what they are as a program. He hasn't forgotten how to coach football. Two years ago, he had one of the greatest teams we've ever seen. What do you think? He got amnesia and forgot how to run a program? No. He doesn't have the same folks in the stable that he had there. He doesn't have the same players. But on paper, on paper this is one of the most talented groups he's ever had. You will never convince me, oh, they just don't have the players. They don't have the horses. Yeah, they do. Yes, I can assure you they do. And so I think, I think changes are coming there. And look. I think they'll come as soon as the season's over. I think that he'll probably get it right. And some of the dumbest talk I've heard over the past 24 hours is, well, this probably means his dynasty's over. (sighs) Their season is over as it relates to their preseason goals. You have no earthly idea about the trajectory of a dynasty because a dynasty moves at the speed of like an iceberg. You have no clue because you can't see it moving, because it doesn't move very fast. And what it takes to build one doesn't happen overnight. And what it takes to tear one down doesn't happen overnight. Uh, The fact is, you heard a lot of people on TV today that were fighting for your clicks and your attention, that were talking about dynasty, that would have never had that word come out of their mouth today if Brian Kelly's two-point conversion attempt failed. And the reality is, whether it succeeds or fails doesn't make that dude any different a head coach. It doesn't make Brian Kelly any different a head coach. But I know it's result-oriented. I know this is an outcomes-oriented business and world. I get all that. But it doesn't make the talk any less dumb when it happens. So Nick Saban has seen his team woefully underachieve. His organization is woefully underachieving right now. I think he'll get it right. I do not think he's close to walking away. I don't think his dynasty is close to collapsing. I do think there's significant work because here's the challenge for him. And I'd love to, if we got him on the show and we injected truth serum into his neck, I would love to know when you assess your organization and you think you lack toughness, they're not as tough as Georgia right now. How do you decide the specific things or people who need to go and change or the specific things or people who need to come in to change that aspect of your program. If you guys aren't good at tackling, you you just incorporate new drills or maybe new methodology. But if you don't think your program's focus is where it needs to be, if you have problems chronically with penalties and you've done everything you know how to do, how do you know what to hit the dump button on and what to bring in? That is one of the few reasons why that guy gets paid a lot of money. Going to be an interesting an interesting winter and spring period there in Tuscaloosa. One of the other outcomes that, that made me, it's really hot in here, I'm fanning myself because of that, but one of the outcomes that really made me take a second look at the board yesterday happened in uh, South Bend, Indiana. So, Colin, here's your end point here. I'm on the field there in Athens yesterday, and we're wrapping up our post game, and one of my buddies, greatly dry sense of humor, text me, and he says, hey, does Academy Sports and Outdoors sell body bags? And I was preoccupied, so I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you may want to check the Clemson score. And I looked, and it was 28 to nothing Notre Dame. And at that point, I knew why he wanted to know 
Weather Academy and Outdoors sold body bags. This was the Sarah McLaughlin special yesterday. This was the body bagging. And it's harsh language, but that's how we roll around here. If you watch this game, you can only be upset that I said it. You're not upset at what I'm saying because it's factual. 28-0 at one point. Notre Dame led this. Clemson's opening drive. I had stats and info, a.k.a. producer Jesse, accumulate their opening drive. First and 10. We've seen plenty of games start like that. First and 16. Penalty. Second and 18. Second and 26. Penalty. Third and 22. Fourth and 14. Punt. Blocked. Touchdown. Notre Dame well on their way to rolling. It was 28 to nothing at one point. That's when I saw it. Uh, there was a final of 35 to 14 here. There are a lot of wild numbers in this box score, but they're false padlock stats because there's really only one padlock stat with which I want to focus our attention on. I'll get to that in a second. Drew Pine, and I just want you to imagine me walking up to you Friday and asking you about the Notre Dame quarterback there. If I asked you, Drew Pine, yeah, Notre Dame quarterback, what about him? Well, hush, let me finish. Drew Pine, if he throws for, oh, let's say 85 yards, do you think that's going to be good enough for Notre Dame to win? You say, absolutely not. Give me Clemson. Lay the points. Let's go. Well, Drew Pine had 85 total passing yards. He was 9 of 17, and Notre Dame won convincingly for reasons I'll get to in a second. How about Pete Sampson's tweet? Do we have that thing? Pete Sampson covers Notre Dame for The Athletic. He put up a tweet earlier, and Jesse read it to me, and I said, don't read it again. Screenshot it. Put it on the show. Listen to this if you're listening on podcast. Notre Dame faced 12 third-down conversion moments last night against Clemson. When they ran it, Notre Dame converted all six, including a third and 10 and a third and 12. When it passed, Notre Dame converted zero of six with Drew Pine completing just one pass. The formula became pretty clear pretty quickly here, didn't it? Which arrives us at our padlock stat. Clemson defensively, here's a little pre-padlock stat for you. That defensive unit, that defensive front there, they were giving up 88 rushing yards per game on average coming in. Notre Dame hung 263 yesterday. Their offensive line took over the game. I didn't see it coming. I don't know if Notre Dame fans saw that coming. I certainly didn't hear a lot of that talk last week, but wow. And I went back and watched the condensed game a little bit earlier. Just cut totally out of left field. Didn't expect that type of dominant performance. I expected they'd struggle to throw the ball. But that's when I asked you the other day, having said that, where's the offense going to come from? And it came from a place where I just didn't think it was possible to come from. I didn't think they could run the ball like that on Clemson. And wow, they did. Dabo afterwards was every bit as surprised as me. He just admitted, I had no clue this was coming. We had a great week of practice. So we, we went worried when we came up here. But that shows you why coaches are always so paranoid. because. You go into games sometimes and you see these guys and they're, they're wound tighter than a snare drum and you wonder, man, what are you so worried about? You should easily win this game this week. Well, they all remember instances like this where they think they're prepared and they're going into it and they love the week of practice they've had and they're playing a team they outclass and they just get whipped. And afterwards, think about how unsettling that is. It's one thing if you know we're banged up badly and we're, we're just not prepared this week. It is what it is. You're not surprised by it. When you think you're prepared 
And you, you really, as a staff, think that we've done a good job this week. And you just get blanked. You get blanked by a team that lost to Marshall earlier this year. That's tough. That is a tough pill to swallow. A necessary one. Because with Clemson, we circle back. And we ask ourselves, those coaching moves that happened this last summer, the casuals would call it the offseason. And there may have been some casual moves made by Dabo Swinney. I, far be it from me to tell the guy how to put a staff together, but I, even I remember myself sitting here saying, that's Clemson. That job, those jobs there, those coordinator positions are coveted. And you didn't even so much as leave the zip code there before you promoted from within. You lost Brent Venables. That is a good defensive coordinator. You lost Tony Elliott. That's a good offensive coordinator. And, you, I mean, Dabo even just audaciously said, oh, it took me about 15 seconds. I knew we had the guys in-house. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. I don't think their staff's good enough. I don't think their staff measures up to a lot of the other programs in America right now. And it's not because they have to be in that position. Dabo Swinney elected to be in that position. So we're talking about Nick Saban and what he's going to do after the season. It, what's Dabo going to do? Because I'm not so sure that it, it's just one loss that makes him realize, uh-oh, may have made some boo-boos here. I mean, is he really going to elevate those guys and then look them in the eye after one year and say, all right, that's all, that's all the rope I'm going to give you? It gets really tough. It gets really tough to make those decisions. Notre Dame is 6-3 and three right now. They lost to Ohio State in week one. They lost to Marshall. They lost to Stanford. So you can understand my sentiment when I say this kind of came out of nowhere. They've got Navy. They've got Boston College. And then guess where they end the season? They go to Los Angeles, California, November 26th, Thanksgiving weekend, and they play USC. What could be on the line for USC? That's a team in the fringes of the college football playoff conversation right now. What could be on the line for USC? Look, I think that it's equally intriguing to look at what Marcus Freeman is doing at Notre Dame and what Dabo is going to have to do at Clemson because their season's not over either. Look, just because they're talking about you being out of the college football playoff conversation, you still got a conference playoff and a a conference uh, championship picture, I guess, over there to focus on. So a lot of of divergent questions coming out of that game. All right, let's move on here. There's another game. Actually, there are like five or six more games I'm going to touch on. I have no voice because you can't. You you guys cannot possibly understand how, how much hoarseness and voice loss sneaks up on you when you're going to games every week because you don't realize you have to yell constantly. But you have to yell to be heard. So you either got two choices. One, don't talk to anyone, in, in which case you look like a social recluse. Or the other is you just got to yell all afternoon. And then you come back to Nashville and try and do a show and, ugh, I see that Kyle, I see that, <laughs> Colin, let me ask you a favor. If I wanted to do the Every Given Saturday Tour announcement right now, could I do it? Okay, okay, let's do it. Thank you, Colin. The reason is because I timed up a tweet to be sent out, and the show's going longer than I thought it was. Hope you guys took the over, like I told you to. And so uh, the tweet has already gone out. The Every Given Saturday Tour Week 11 destination. Jesse, did you prepare a helpful graphic of showing the options that we had? He did. Okay. We got Alabama at Ole Miss. We've got UCF at Tulane. We got Washington 
Big rivalry game in Eugene going to Oregon. How about TCU going to Texas? The undefeated seventh-ranked Horned Frogs, a touchdown underdog in Austin against Texas. And we got North Carolina against Wake Forest. Where would you go before I even give you the answer? Because no one knows where we're going. Well, if you're on Twitter, you do, but you should be watching the show right now. I don't have a drum roll effect, but I'm so excited to announce where we're going because uh, it's historic. It's certainly a first time. We've never been to this place. The Every Given Saturday Tour, week 11. We are headed to New Orleans, Louisiana for Central Florida versus Tulane. And I, for the rest of this week, will answer to no name other than G5 Josh. You've met Pac-12 Pate, okay? Once accused of being an SEC homer, no more. Pac-12 Pate went to Eugene. G5 Josh is headed down to New Orleans to take in UCF and Tulane. And I've got a helpful stat here. And this one's going to blow even your mind, Jesse. This is the first time Tulane has played in a matchup of ranked teams since the 1973 Blue Bonnet Bowl. And who could forget that one? Uh, that was against Houston, I think. And the only reason I say I think that is because I found it on NOLA.com because I surely was not tuned in. I don't even think Bradley's old enough to remember the 73 Blue Bonnet Bowl. We are going to check out Gus Malzahn on the road against Willie Fritz. Really looking forward to that. There's no more beautiful color blue, in my opinion, than the color blue that Tulane paints their end zone in. So if I can get a t-shirt with that little wave mascot on it down there, I will have accomplished everything that I want to accomplish in making this trip. We're looking forward to that. More on that throughout the week. Now let's go back to regularly scheduled programming. Thank you for that, Colin. Florida, 41. A&M, 24. Parallel Truth Game. We put this label on like four or five games a year, and this is one of them. Parallel Truths. Because I could not tell you how many times already today I've had someone either tell me, this is all about Florida, or this is all about A&M. The Gators either rolled, or A&M was without like 47 kids due to the flu. Uh, both of them are true. Both of them are true. Florida had a really good day yesterday, and it's impressive because they had two options. They could stay down on the mat after Georgia roughed them up a little bit, or they could get right back up, and to their credit, they did. Texas A&M was without 31 players yesterday. Due to either injury or illness or suspension, they were without 18 in their two deep. Yes, that matters. You can celebrate Florida's win and acknowledge that matters. I've got a pre-padlock stat for you here. pre woo woo Pre-padlock alert, we had a magic number in this game. We had, I guess, a pre-pre-padlock stat last week for you, courtesy of producer Jesse. He said, remember this? He said, 210. That's the number you need to hammer home in this show, 210. Florida was 4-0 coming into this game when they ran for at least 210. They were 0-4 when they did not meet that mark. Florida yesterday, they took care of it. Season high, 291 yards on the ground. Anthony Richardson. I think a career high, if I'm not mistaken, 279 total yards, four touchdowns. They, as a team, had three guys over 75 yards rushing. So what a day yesterday for Florida. They needed this. They needed this bad. And it was a tale of two halves, too. Because, see, I checked the score, and I want to say it was 24 to 20 A&M at the half. And I thought to myself, <laughs> despite all odds, to, to quote Phil Collins, against all odds, look at A&M. But here's the thing. When you're missing 18 and you're too deep, you can sugar high your way to halftime. But, ooh, you got to thoroughly your way to the finish line. And it's tough 
and they couldn't do it yesterday. Florida outscored them 21 to nothing in the second half. A&M had 9.3 yards per play in the first half, 2.9 in the second half. Florida had a 229 to 106 yards advantage in the second half. They had a 121 to 11 rushing yards advantage in the second half. Here is a helpful drive chart. Courtesy of producer Jesse, this is Texas A&M second half. Three and out, three and out, five and out, three and out, 10 plays and a fumble, three plays and a fumble, turnover on downs, three and out, ball game. So yes, as it turns out, it's tough to play without like a third or a quarter of your team. And especially this time in the year. Texas A&M's fifth straight loss. It's the first time since 1980 that that's happened. They've got to win out now to make a bowl game. And they've got Auburn, and they got UMass, and they got LSU. And that's going to be a chore. And quite frankly, if they can get past Auburn, and they're favored by two this week, they're going on the road. If they can get past Auburn, I, even I think they'll handle UMass. The LSU game could be interesting because that becomes a Super Bowl for them. You just have to recalibrate your expectations and your goals this time of year if you're in their position. They're three and six. That is amazing to look at. That's, that's very jarring. If you could ever cryogenically freeze yourself in the preseason and thaw yourself Austin Powers style in like mid-November, think about how shocking in any given year some of these results would be. And this year, three and six for A&M is one of those. Florida. I know is not achieving at the level the fan base wants to in year one. This is yet another sign that Billy Napier's doing some right things down there. I know it's happening at LSU faster than Florida, and it's really tough not to cast your gaze over there across the Gulf at what's happening in Baton Rouge. Forget that. It's an apples to bowling balls comparison. Every program has its own unique circumstance. Florida's no different. Interesting times, interesting year. They'll grow from it. They'll portal. I assume they'll, they'll portal pretty hard because everyone's going to. And they'll be a lot better next year. I think they'll be a lot better product next year. Added takeaways. I've got five more games to talk to you about. I've got two early best bets. And then I have got a very, very, very important request I need to make to you. Uh, it's, it's not a happy request, but I got to make a request to you. But first, let's talk about some games yesterday. FSU drug Miami 45-3, splattered them all over their own home park, and it didn't matter because most of the Canes fans were gone after halftime anyway. FSU's bowl eligible for the first time since 2015. We jumped on this game on Friday Night Lines. It sat at 7.5. I wanted to see if it came down. We didn't think it would matter. We thought FSU was totally the side to lean mismatch-wise here. That's the third largest margin of victory. In the history of this series, 45 to 3, total splattering, 454 to 188. That was the yardage edge for the Knowles. FSU has been a team I've taken criticism for because they have been in the JP poll. We haven't dropped them out. They've been in the JP poll every week, which is just our model's power ratings. But you keep seeing why. Like this, this performance here should be one key indication. I know it's not the hardest thing in the world to do to beat Miami right now. But Florida State's a good team, and it illustrates why they continue to hang around. There's, there are things, there are characteristics about teams that that model picks up on, and it's right more times than not. And it's right about Florida State. That's one of the 20 best teams in the country right now. And they're 6-3, and, three, and I, 
They could win the ACC. They very well could win the ACC. Just keep an eye on them. Next up, this one, this one got me a little bit. Liberty beat Arkansas yesterday, 21 to 19. Is there a padlock stat? Yeah, yeah, there absolutely is. Uh, the number is 14. And that is how many tackles for loss. The Liberty Flames, not exactly known for their defensive prowess historically, recorded against Arkansas yesterday. Arkansas's first four drives, minus 16 yards. I think that comes courtesy of Trey Biddy over at hogsports.com. This was a job interview for Hugh Freeze. There was no doubt about that going in. There was certainly no doubt about it afterwards. Do we have the quote, Jesse? I forgot if we made that. Yeah, so Freeze talked to Brandon Marcello after the game. Listen to this. Is this not awkward if you're a Liberty fan, by the way? This is a quote out of the mouth of Hugh Freeze. I don't know that Auburn wants me. I have no clue. I know this. I've won everywhere I've been, and my staff and kids have turned programs fast. It's our culture that we instill. I know we do that, and the proof is in the pudding. I don't disagree with a word he just said. I wouldn't have a single problem hiring the guy. A lot of you do. I want to win football games. I, I'm, not, I'm not running a Boy Scout camp over here. And so I look at this a little different. But you run your program however you want to. Everything he said there is right. It just kind of took me back a little bit that he was willing to say it out loud. Most of the time, the way this happens, let me give you a little peek behind the curtain. I'm not speaking about Hugh Freeze right now. I'm saying in a very generic fashion, if a guy wants to get out, the way they do it with me is they start either calling me or texting me and they start explaining their plight and they know it's all off the record and they understand we got a big platform here and they understand that sometimes these platforms can sway the thinking of decision makers at certain universities. And so they'll, they'll try and kind of grease the skids a little bit and they'll get some traction behind the idea that they should be included in a coaching search, blah, blah, blah. That's the way it normally works. The way it usually doesn't work is having a guy like Hugh Freeze say, pretty much, excuse me, I'm over here. I, I just won again. I can do it for you. But congratulations to him. I mean, that's a, that's a big win there. And Malik Willis, you know, Jesse made a good point earlier. Malik Willis is starting in the NFL right now. A lot of people thought he was the reason Liberty was winning. Turns out they're 8-1 even after Malik Willis. They go to UConn, Virginia Tech, and New Mexico State to close out the year. Ohio State played a game yesterday so many people were wrong about. I don't mean prediction. I mean, if you didn't watch this, the score makes no sense to you. If you watch the game, the score makes total sense to you. Every now and then, we have a weather-based outcome. And this was a weather-based outcome, and that's all it was. 21 to 7 was the final. Ohio State beat Northwestern. They played in tropical storm force winds, literally, and it made them incapable of operating their offense. And I saw some just deadbeat casual takes yesterday that said, well, you should be able to adjust. There's no adjustment, man. Did you hear what I said? I didn't say tropical. I said tropical storm force winds. There's nothing. There is, there's no offense that you would want for your team. Let me put it that way. There is no offense that you would want your team to adopt that could adapt to 40 mile an hour wins. Doesn't happen. And so you just, CJ Stratt had to run the ball yesterday. And he hates running the ball. And he had to run the ball yesterday. My point is, you can, you can say that if you want to. 
If you're just out to criticize, if you're just out to run your mouth, yes, go ahead and say, well, they should have just adjusted. If you live in the real world with the rest of us and you understand that the Big Ten championship games played indoors, the playoffs are played indoors, the national championships either indoors or it's in a place where it's 72 degrees year round, you don't ever have to worry about that. You may have to worry about it in conference play. That's the risk you take. But the trade-off is you get the elite athletes they get, you got to run the kind of offense where you can throw a ball. And if you can't throw the ball in those conditions, don't worry, it's Northwestern. You can lean on them and win. That's the only takeaway. There is no deep dive into this game. Weather mattered yesterday. And they won't play in those conditions again this year. I can virtually guarantee that. Virtually guarantee that. Moving on. Texas. How's Texas favored? How are they favored? Well, they're favored because they are a better team than Kansas State. Believe it or not, uh, this is, I want you to pretend this is me talking to you on Friday. I was chatting with some people close to the Texas program last week, and even they were a little perplexed. Are we, we're favored by three, three and a half on the road against the same Kansas State team that just beat Oklahoma State 48 to nothing? No, that's not true. You were favored against Kansas State, and it's true Kansas State won 48 to nothing the week before. You don't play the same team that fill in the blank ever. You don't play the same team because those teams are good for one week. You get 12 versions of teams. That's what you get. So the version Texas got yesterday was a team that started out nothing to nothing. It's not, they didn't carry 48 points with them into the game. And they proceeded to win. And they proceeded to get up big, 31 to 10 at the half. Problem is, that's about where the good news ends offensively for Texas too often. So they got outscored 17 to 3 in the second half. Fortunately, they built an early enough lead, a big enough lead. Bijan Robinson had 161 yards, a touchdown at the half, by the way. Those aren't his total yardage accumulations. This is a big, big week out there. Big week. Texas 6-3 right now. They got TCU this week. And for all of you who look at the JP poll and cuss me up and down because we got Texas power rated, and I tell you the only thing that thing's based on is who would be favored against who, Texas was favored against Kansas State yesterday. They are favored by a touchdown against TCU this week. The losses don't matter in that world. Now, in the Big 12 standings, you'll notice they're three games behind TCU. Why? Because they've lost. They're two games behind in the conference standings. So they're two games behind because they've lost. But in power rating world, in odds making world, they don't really care about that so much. Uh, let's also talk about the other end of this Big 12 spider web of a conference race. Baylor beat Oklahoma 38-35, and uh, Oklahoma minus two turnovers. Here's a little padlock stat for you. Imagine knowing this Friday. Dylan Gabriel, quarterback there for Oklahoma, he had thrown one pick all year. All year. He threw three in the first half yesterday. It's a bad look. Put you behind the eight ball. Baylor gets 132 passing yards. They were the Big 12 equivalent, essentially, of what we saw elsewhere in the country yesterday. They get 132 passing yards and they still win. And here's what's fun about Baylor. If you'll, uh, if you'll, Colin, I, I messed you up again because I was about to call for their schedule. So if you'll look at Baylor's schedule, there's no easy way to do it. We just got to dump out of the B-roll. Baylor's in an interesting position right now. They're the Big 12 champion last year. And I think some people have written them off, but they're still in this. They're still right there. They have got a six and three record. But here's the fun part. 
Kansas State and TCU and, and Baylor and Texas, and those are the teams still in this conference race. Baylor's final three games, Kansas State this week, TCU next week, and Texas in Austin the week after that. They could still do it. They could still hand out those losses. They could still get themselves back in the conference championship game. Selfishly, I hope for that because I kind of picked them to repeat. And I never gave up. And I'm not going to give up this late because I'm too prideful to do that, at least when it comes to my predictions. So uh, go Bears is what I'm trying to tell you. Okay, I got two things to get to here really quick. Best bets, early best bets for the week. And then I've got something that is a whole lot different to end the show with. Uh, we got two early best bets. I, I sincerely regret that we weren't on Penn State yesterday. The model had, uh, I was telling Jesse, the model had five games that were rated 60% or higher that I didn't move on yesterday. They went 5-0. and oh. Penn State was one of them. So we're going to roll on Penn State early this week. They play Maryland. Uh, we bet against Maryland yesterday, and it worked for us. We're going to bet against them this week again. We love Penn State minus 12. I think that number should be 16. So Penn State minus 12 is one. Why leave the Keystone State? That's a, that's a battleground state this Tuesday in the election. We don't have to wait till the election. We're doing it right now. We're taking Pitt, and we're going to lay four points. They're going to Virginia. Rule number one on our show, don't lose to food. And I don't even know who Rice plays this week. Rule number two, bet against Virginia whenever you can this year because it's been profitable for us. Pitt minus four on the road against Virginia. Those are our two best bets. Uh, we'll be loaded up again this week because I have several more games that we like. I got some horrific news to end the show with. It's not a joke. It really is horrific. About... Uh, three weeks ago to a month ago, remember we did the show in Tuscaloosa? It was A&M versus Bama week, and we were at Rounders there right on the strip, and they were nice enough to open their doors, and they let us do a broadcast. Big Game Dane was there. Greg Gelber was there. Even Nick Bourne made his way out. I met so many people before, during, and after that show, and uh, we had hundreds of you there. And I stayed afterwards for, it felt like an hour, and took pictures and shook hands and met folks. Love doing that, because uh, you're the reason that the show exists. I got a text. Well, I got a DM Friday. That's when I opened it. And I found out that one of our viewers, I mean, one of our diehard viewers that I met there passed away over the last week, unexpectedly. And that's Jude right there. So you see him in the picture. If you're watching on YouTube, that's him over there on the far left. Uh, Big Game Danes hovering in the background, by the way. And he passed away in his dorm room unexpectedly. Um, they, they need some help from us, so we're going to help them. Uh, they have already raised about $5,000 for his funeral expenses. We're going to take care of the rest of it for him as an audience. And so I would appreciate you guys. If you'll look in the chat over here, uh, I just posted the link to this GoFundMe. Jesse will post it in there a couple of times. But also, if you're watching the replay, if you look in the show description, there's a link there. I would appreciate any of you who can help out with that, $10, $20, whatever you want to donate, uh, please help out with that. Because that really, really got my weekend off to a bad start. I'm not speaking selfishly. I'm just, it was really kind of jarring because I just, I met the kid three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And so his family's in need right now, and I want us to help him. And every time that I've ever asked you guys to help out in this way, you've come through before even the next show is on air. So I fully expect that to be paid in full before our next show airs. And I'm going to tell you, I appreciate it in advance. And I know his family will appreciate it very much. So 
That's our show for tonight. I always appreciate you guys um, helping us out with that. For Director Connell, for Producer Jesse, I'm Josh Pate. Take care. We'll be back here same time Tuesday night. Have a great start to your week. God bless you.